Greetings, everyone. I'm Benjamin Anderson, and I am honored to spend the next 45 minutes to an hour with you discussing administrative leadership and capacity building in a missional setting and sharing some stories, some reflections, and uh, some lessons learned the hard way uh, on my journey on hospital, uh, through hospital administration. And, and so I'll begin by telling you a story. Uh, this is a picture of a pilot uh, in Colorado who is hauling boxes of PPE or personal protective equipment uh, from Denver, from a Project Cure warehouse out to uh, parts of rural Colorado who are at the end of the supply line and ensuring that those, uh, those hospitals get the PPE they need. Um, this, really a lesson was learned in the middle of this first surge of this pandemic, which was systems really are necessary to ensure the safety or healing of people. Uh, no clinician's prescription pad could solve this PPE issue. We really needed a collaborative approach. And so what we had done uh, was gotten together and developed a, 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 uh, an initiative called Heart for Heroes, which, which harnessed donations from everyday individuals to give to an organization called Project Cure, which is an organization that shipped PPE all over the United States uh, and uh, from, from one of their many warehouses. And, and really traditionally, Project Cure sends uh, PPE equipment supplies to mission hospitals all over the world, but uh, but they'd switched their focus to the United States during COVID. And so uh, we had developed an initiative in partnership with Angel Flight West to, uh, to, to leverage their pilots and their airplanes and their gas all donated to get PPE out to rural areas. And so it was a system that had to be set into place, but it really did make an enormous difference uh, for our rural hospitals who needed uh, to get PPE, especially during that first surge when there was a global shortage that, that has turned out to continue to perpetuate. Uh, so it, the lesson learned for us was that we really needed to develop systems if we were going to avoid the harm of people. Which leads me to a lesson that I've learned from a woman named Sister Mary Jean Ryan, who was past president of uh, president and CEO of SSM Health System, which was the organization that won the first ever National Malcolm Baldrige Award for Quality. Uh, when she was there in 2000, uh, she, they, they, their system won that. She later became chair of the board and for a long time has been a mentor to me. And she taught me a lesson that in any instance where a person is avoidably harmed due to broken processes or even good processes that could be better, we've committed a moral failure because that harm was avoidable. And if it's avoidable, it is morally unacceptable. We must develop systems that heal and not systems that lead to harm. So speaking of that and the complexities of medicine and the importance of systems, I have a good friend who is a missionary physician, uh, a surgeon in uh, Northeast Africa and, and goes back and forth from the East Coast here in the United States to Northeast Africa and went there right out of residency to, to really learn perhaps the hard way about the necessity of uh, good systems in healthcare administration uh, where he was working. And, and he sent me a text or a, a note this said, practicing medicine in America is like driving a car. Practicing medicine overseas is like someone, ship, some, someone shipping you a junkyard and then telling you to build a car and put it together and figure out where to buy gas and then driving it. Uh, you might have a license to drive and be a great driver, but you're going to have, have to learn many other roles to actually move forward in medicine. A good uh, administrator will find a metal worker, a mechanic, hand you a gas card and tell you where to buy the gas for a car that's already working. 
um, essentially, and then you're off to the races. And that's always stuck with me uh, because this same surgeon was said when he was in residence, he was used to putting out his hand and someone put a scalpel in it. And and not only when he when he got there were, were there was there no one putting a scalpel in his hand, there often weren't scalpels. And and that's the reality for many of us who have experience on the mission field. So here's a little background agenda uh, for the talk for today. We're going to go through uh, some experiences in hospital administration and, and some of the impacts there. We're, we're going to look at the importance of administrative leadership for specifically team culture, stewardship, excellence, sustainability. And then we're going we're gonna to talk about tools or we're going to describe some tools for developing healthy team culture within uh, or, or with competent mission-driven administrative leadership. And hope, hopefully you'll be able to take some of these things uh, as you consider going onto the field or implement them as you're already on field. So I, I've spent the last 10 years in Southwest Kansas as a rural ho hospital CEO before moving to Colorado. And, and I worked with many mission-driven physicians. And, and these were two of the, the people that I had the privilege of working at. This picture was actually called Time Out for Prayer. And it's for many years hung at the, uh, in, the in the halls of the KU School of Medicine, University of Kansas School of Medicine. And it was uh, it was taken prior to uh, the beginning of a C-section within our hospital, but it, it really exemplifies the culture within our hospital where I, where I spent the last six and a half or seven of those 10 or 11 years. And, and uh, all of our doctors received 10 weeks of paid time off to go anywhere in the world they wanted to go. And, uh, and they would often choose to spend uh, that time working in, in a missional setting in an overseas hospital. And, and these two doctors... Uh, were no were no exception. They they would do the same, uh, but they practice full spectrum family medicine. Uh, family physicians would deliver babies, perhaps by C-section, round on patients in the hospital, uh, ER, uh, um, trauma, psychiatry, uh, elderly care, take care of babies and, and kiddos, and and all all in a day. And and then they were also serving a very diverse population. So we were, uh, according to the Washington Post in Lakin, Kansas, the 10th most remote town in the United States. I didn't know this was a contest we were in. It's certainly not one we were trying to win. But as we look closer at the list, we realized that 10 of the 30 most remote towns in the United States were actually in our service area uh, in southwest Kansas. And in, in a given year, we had delivered babies from all of those communities or counties. And so we're up there with Montana, with middle of nowhere places to, to live and work and practice medicine, uh, except this is Montana, and uh, this is Kansas. And, and to be fair, this is half of Montana back, uh, it was half of Montana, this is actually all of Kansas. Uh, so, so definitely, uh, definitely a remote place, definitely a hard place uh, to recruit to normally. Uh, but what most folks didn't realize is this is also Kansas, and 30 countries are represented in the service area of our hospital because of the presence of the world's largest beef packing plant. It was just 15 miles east of us in Holcomb, Kansas, also known for the book Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Uh, so known for the world's largest beef packing plant and also uh, the book In Cold Blood. And so that's where we were. There were many, many... Uh, uh, cultures, countries there from Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Burma, Eritrea, the Congo, many parts of East Africa, parts of Central and South America. Uh, there were Mennonite uh, gentlemen who would speak low German and Spanish, but no English. Uh, and so they were either from Canada or Mexico. So on a typical day, our doctors would not only be 
delivering uh, or, or delivering all that all those sorts of diverse care, but they would also be uh, trying to figure out how to culturally relate to people from 30 countries. So a fascinating place to practice medicine. We are the little gold spot in the southwest Kansas. Uh, you folks in Michigan uh, or, or in Texas have really interesting shapes states in Kansas. Uh, we were just the rectangular state in the middle and we took care of the bottom left-hand corner of that state and, and mainly with OB, people would travel quite a bit to, to have their baby in our hospital. So uh, we, we developed while we were there a sustainable primary care model uh, that we centered around four uh, non-negotiables. We would call them non-negotiables. And, and one of them was standardized roles. One of them was an equitable call structure. One was mission-driven culture, and one was fair compensation. And so essentially, standardized roles, meaning that if we're on call for something, we're all on call for it. We're all trained to be on call for operative obstetrics. We're all trained to be on call for ER or trauma. We're all trained to round on patients so that we can cover each other in the hospital. We only had so many dollars to spend or so many provider resources, so we wanted to make sure that we didn't try to specialize in a place that, that we had no business specializing. We specialized in full-scope family medicine, so everyone's on call for the same thing. We made sure everyone was on call equally. There was no senior doctor saying, Dad, gummit, back then I, you know, I did, I did, uh, I did all the hard shifts. I was on call 12 years straight because, because newer physicians are, are frankly wiser than that, um, and they, they know what that does to families, and they're, they're unwilling to do it if they're, if they're, uh, if they're wise, and so they, we make sure that everyone, oldest to youngest, senior to 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 newest, are all on call the same amount. Uh, and then fair compensation, uh, of course, in a, in a missional setting, it's different to overseas. But just we just didn't want to take take advantage of people simply because they were willing to work or practice for less than a mission-driven culture. And so we essentially built this model that included PAs and nurse practitioners, and also doctors and everybody practicing at the highest level of their license. Uh, some of you may know a gentleman by the name of Dr. Todd Stevens at Via Christi, the Family Medicine Residency. He has been a mentor and a, and a discipler and a friend and encouragement to me as a professional and a husband and a father for the last 10 years. And, and he's taught me many lessons, and among them are, before an organization can recruit mission-focused staff, it must first define it and understand its own mission, vision, values, and goals. And uh, so we really had to do that as an organization. I would challenge each of you in your own context to be analyzing the mission, vision, values, and goals of your organizations. And if you, if you can't describe them uh, in an elevator, the proverbial elevator, so, or so to speak, uh, you probably need to relook at those, rethink them, and, and, and determine if, how, how prevalent they are or how relevant they are in your organizational culture. He said, after that, then define candidates that you would work with based on motivation, training, experience, and character, look at the person beyond just their medical license and can they practice in your area legally, but just really what kind of fit are they for your organization. And instead of trying to compete with the fluent money, areas, money, country club, shopping, prestige, those types of things, focus on ministry and justice. And this is in, an, in a U.S. rural underserved uh, context. Um, but really, he's challenging. Uh, he was challenging me to focus on the motivations of people and ensure that the motivations of people 
align well with the organization where they're working, which certainly applies in an overseas missional setting, um, and, and also here in the United States. So Todd's challenge to us uh, really caused us to rethink how we recruited staff. And again, it was about looking at a system that allowed for recruitment to happen, a system that allowed for a safe place to exist where people could come and live and work and do ministry uh, in, in uh, a local context. And so the things that we thought were important previously, the conveniences, the the uh, um, the niceties, I would say, or the uh, the things that would traditionally be nice about practicing or living somewhere, we actually had to rethink those and really clearly describe what made us so competitive. Then we looked at the 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 uh, profiles of the folks typically looking to practice in an underserved area, and there are some overseas comparisons here. First is the local kid. I guess you would compare that in an overseas setting to the third culture kid who grew up uh, overseas or, or a local kid who, who uh, is, a, is a native or national who was trained in a local, in, in, in a local uh, context to practice in that area. Uh, so the local kid coming home, uh, often this is a really good option. Uh, there's the foreigner, and I say this in jest because it can come off condescending, but, but there's the person uh, who, um, who comes, at least in a U.S. context, on a work visa, who's here for a season, and, and generally three to five years, um, after three to five years, doesn't want to be the only one in rural Kansas speaking Arabic or Tagalog. And so they, they, they transition to a, an urban area once they get that coveted green card. Um, so they're often in rural areas as well. There's the troublemaker. Um, I could go into some details, but most of us know who this person is, the one that has uh, a character issue or personality problem or um, is beyond burnout and, uh, and has not um, really dealt with self-care very well or um, has a training issue or training is antiquated or um, you know, folks are avoiding the emergency room when they're there, that kind of person. Um, and so they're, they're often out there because they can be because they're desperately needed. Uh, the money doctor pay me enough and I'll, I'll, I'll go anywhere until somebody pays me a little more. Obviously, we don't find many of them on the mission field, but we certainly find them in rural areas in the United States. And then lastly, the missionary, the one that's driven by a sense of mission or purpose. And, and we would, would equate that as believers with somebody who is really committed to living out the life of the gospel, having Christ live through us and in service to the poor, the oppressed, the wounded, the foreigner. Um, and we figured out in rural Kansas with Todd, Dr. Todd's help, this is really the one we were after. And if we could find one with local ties, that really is a, a best case scenario. But we were really after number five first. Um, so what we did was we developed a model that would allow for 10 weeks of paid time off to go anywhere in the world that folks wanted to go. And I've actually been brought to Colorado to scale that model and, and encourage rural hospitals in Colorado to hire uh, doctors with this 10 weeks of paid time off to allow them to go uh, to different places and um, overseas. And so um, we've, we've already begun that process in Colorado and leveraging uh, Colorado's rural communities um, to, to develop models that can really be uh, in the best interest of rural Coloradans, but also help meet some needs overseas as well, including preparing folks to permanently move overseas. So um, that, that's really the model that was developed there. Um, 
we went from we went from uh, uh, turning away 50 patients a day uh, in I'm sorry 50 patients a week in our rural health clinic uh, to to turning away no one in a matter of about four years as we implemented this model and it, again it was a deliberate system and all the one all the, the pictures surrounded or, or uh, uh, surrounded by blue are all uh, millennial age providers that were recruited in to uh, to our practice um, in and in, uh, in, in a in a practice that really already had a good reputation but was expanded and really uh, the function of it was transformed as we developed this system uh, that made it safe to practice medicine emotionally safe to practice medicine in our community we categorized those doctors that we recruited into our region as senders goers and bridgers and senders would be long-term rural American doctors that, that use some of their time perhaps to go serve overseas, but really just are anchors for these rural communities. Great mentors and support uh, folks for, for missional doctors that intend to be either goers or bridgers, <coughs> excuse me, and goers. Goers are folks that, that choose to spend three to five years in a rural community preparing themselves to move overseas paying off loans, starting a family, um, building relationships, strengthening, strengthening relationships with the church. And then Bridgers third, Bridgers would be folks that, you know, uh, six months, eight months, a year, maybe two years, they're working short term, stabilizing a site while we would recruit more senders and goers. But all three were equally important and all three were part of really what had become like an Antioch model where where doctors would, would come for a season to Kansas and then move overseas. And, and the same is, uh, is something we're considering or developing in parts of rural Colorado as well. Um, so when we recruited those doctors, we did see changes in outcomes. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about outcomes in this talk because, uh, because hospital administration is such an integral part of the, the, uh, the healthcare delivery system in partnership with clinicians to improve outcomes. One of the outcomes we saw improved that we were measuring was right as we began recruiting these or these doctors started showing up, we noticed that we had a very large percentage of, of the mothers with gestational diabetes in our hospital were delivering babies that were large for gestational age. In fact, 84% of the mothers with gestational diabetes were delivering oversized babies. And, uh, and to, to make matters worse, we had twice the national average of gestational diabetic mothers uh, in, in our hospital. So of the mothers delivering in our hospital, 14% had gestational diabetes mellitus or GDM. And, and any of you who are clinicians know the implications of that. There, there are general lacerations and, and um, higher risk of type 2 diabetes and hypoglycemia within, within babies born and, and uh, shoulder dystocia and body dystocia and all kinds of problems that come from that. We knew that needed to, to happen. And so we, we the doctors we recruited partnered with a maternal fetal medicine specialist and really focused on the prenatal care process and with their full scope family medicine training. And we saw that 84% uh, of, of big babies born to gestational diabetic moms drop down to 18%. And uh, that is just really remarkable for us. And it was really a, a door opener to so many people from so many co co countries, including, including Muslim Somali refugees 
who began to frequently deliver their babies, knowing that we would not only help them with gestational diabetes, which was frequent within their, their community or culture, but also could help deal with the female genital mutilation, the damage from FGM that they'd experience as, as, as young girls in uh, East Africa. And so doors were opened as, as our outcomes improved. Um, but, once, but once these doctors, and we ended up recruiting about 20 total doctors to Southwest Kansas, once they got there, I began to get feedback from them in informal uh, interviews after you know, being there a year or some time. And some of the feedback they gave me were, they love what I do for them, Ben, but they don't love me. They were speaking of the local culture and their ability to integrate into the local culture. This is a great place to train if your desire is to move to a closed country where people are suspicious of outsiders. We haven't been in a single home in our first year in this community. Um, this was another a doctor who moved there who, who is since moving overseas, but, but found it very difficult to integrate in Southwest Kansas. Um, in, in a community where there wasn't a deliberate system to ensure that they integrated well, even though they had over 100 people in their home, they hadn't had a single person uh, invite them in, into their home other than their pastor who was also new to the community. Um, for the first six months after I arrived here, I wondered if I'd unknowingly done something that had caused people in the community to think poorly of me. Now I realize it's not that they think poorly of me, that they don't think about me at all. And um, this, this was feedback about what it was like to move into rural America, and, and I'm guessing that um, that some of you are, are sensing some of the same isolating feelings that you may have felt on the mission field as well. Um, another one said, this has been the most isolating experience of my life. I've never known depression until I moved here. This has been much harder than I thought it would be. Another one said, everyone is friendly here, but I don't have any friends. Um, the feeling of isolation is real. This community doesn't have a classification for single women in their early 30s. Perhaps there were people who wanted to reach out to me, but they didn't know how to do so. And this was from a single female physician uh, who, who spent three years out in southwest Kansas and just giving honest and candid feedback. Another one, moving to Uganda is much easier than moving here. Uh, a single woman are treated with pity uh, and invited into people's families. You know, as, as though, it, you know, it's so bad, it's, it's too bad that somebody hasn't asked you to be married uh, or, 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 or invited you to marry them. Uh, single men, he said, are treated like pedophiles, not to be trusted. Uh, we're not invited into people's lives. It's as though they're saying, what is the matter with you? Why at 30 years old aren't you married? Which, which is a really hard reality for many, many of us who are, um, have, have not begun our families or, or, not, uh, or not called to be married or, or, or are called to be single or are still single in our lives right now. It could be very isolating in Southwest Kansas as well. This one uh, uh, physician was saying, but perhaps the most poignant story or feedback I received was from a doctor who said there was a, she, she said, you're not, you're not uh, advertising this, this position correctly or accurately, which is really hard to hear because um, I'd had a part in her moving out to Southwest Kansas, and she said, um, you did say it was a hard place to move, but, but I, I didn't know how hard. And, and, and an analogy I would use is that there is a, she, she said, there, there's a, a British explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton who uh, led several expeditions to the South Pole, and he actually didn't make it back from the third one, and there were brutal expeditions, but he used to put something in the English newspaper that said, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition, case of success, Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. 
Um, she said, I think if you change it to people wanted for an emotionally hazardous journey, emotionally bitter cold, long months of complete emotional darkness, constant emotional danger. She said, I think we'd still come because we're mission driven and we want to serve the Lord in hard places, but we'd be pleasantly surprised if it's not quite that hard. And what she was describing is this is really hard to move here. And I'm wondering, as I'm sharing these stories with each of you, does this feedback sound familiar? to some of the folks who've come onto the mission field with you? Does this sound like your own experience? If so, let's think about the parallels between what we experience in Southwest Kansas and what you all may be experiencing or could be experiencing with overseas teams. So I would say in, ref in a reflection that that we uh, we treated our we treated it like mission work, but I don't know that we intentionally developed a team like like we could have developed a team and really thought through. You're moving to a place that's not all that different from Somalia as far as as far as a difficult place to move. You're moving to a place that that is very isolating, that is very closed off, that that it, that that it takes year, local people years to trust you just as it would in, in, a, in a very hard or even closed country. Um, you need to prepare like that. And, and um, what I would say is that administration doesn't fix all that. It really takes a collaborative effort between administrative leaders and clinicians and pastors and, and other community leaders to really develop a system that makes it safe uh, for, for folks to come and to thrive and to stay. But I would say that an effective administrative leader can play a critical role in developing a system or strategy to improve team member health and prevent burnout. If it's done well, and I would say as a hospital CEO, I didn't do it perfectly and often didn't do it well, but certainly learned lessons the hard way over that period of 10 years as, as we were just pouring ourselves into team members uh, that were coming out our way. Um, a good indicator of team health I would say is the frequently, frequency of date nights or fun nights. If, if you haven't had a date night in months, there is an indicator of something that's perhaps not as healthy. If you have the margin and the systems in place, people watching kids or covering call or whatever, where if, if you're in a relationship, you're having date nights with your, your, your spouse or significant other. If you're single, you're having fun with friends and, and doing things that are recharging or life-giving to you. If those things are regularly on your list, that's an indication of a healthy team. If you don't have the margin for that, that is a red flag and that is not sustainable. Um, so I'd ask you, as we think about the administrative component of this, does your team track outcomes of your care? Or are you just working on tracking volume? Or are you tracking anything? Um, frequently, when I'm, I'm asking uh, missionary clini clinicians that are on the field, are you, how, how are you tracking outcomes? The frequent answer is we're not even tracking volume. We don't have any idea how many procedures we're doing in a month or how that fluctuates. I mean, much less outcomes or how, how our patients are doing afterward. We think we're doing our best, but we're not actually, we're not actually tracking that. And we're not actually asking patients what outcome they're after. We're just assuming we know. And so I would ask you to think about how you're measuring your effectiveness in these roles. And I would say that because 
Here, here are three gentlemen who are with Baylor Scott and White, either recently retired or still affiliated with Baylor Scott and White. And, and these guys founded what is called Faith in Action Initiatives. And they, it's, a, it's a 12 or $13 billion system. It's a faith-based system. And they send a lot of their medical supplies that are still good, even uh, medications that have not passed expiration dates or supplies that are necessary. They send them to Waco in, 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 in uh, what was a hospital uh, ER room. And they put them essentially in like a shopping mall uh, for, for no cost to, to, to send supplies overseas. And um, this group actually sent a container over to East Africa to, uh, to a mission hospital there um, with all kinds of things, including a C-arm, um, uh, which is a, not a cheap piece of medical equipment, but a working C-arm, um, and, and, and filled requests uh, over there. And, and stewardship is one of the core values of this system. And so I would ask you, would it be appropriate to ask them to send supplies to a place that has that has no demonstrated commitment to tracking outcomes, that has no organized uh, uh, system around tracking the supply chain and, and stewardship of supplies? It's a pretty difficult ask for them to send those limited resources that they are saving um, for kingdom work into a place that is no more committed to quality and to systems than that. So, so it is, it's really, really important that we are committed to quality, committed to stewardship, committed to excellence, committed to, um, to good practices. If we are going to ask folks stateside to be investing financially or, or materially in, in our uh, ministries overseas. So, should we expect them to contribute without that? I propose not. I propose that our commitment to stewardship should be connected to their commitment. So let's switch gears here. We've talked about the importance of systems and stewardship. Let's talk about systems uh, and health outcomes. I had an opportunity to teach at a medical school and residency in uh, the Horn of Africa for a couple of weeks. I was there uh, teaching uh, in this in this case, a case on uh, a a patient who came to the uh, hospital after attempting to deliver about uh, it was about 24 or 48 hours in labor. It was an extended period of labor. Uh, had come in and uh, and there was the patient was exhausted and and we, they figured out really quickly that there was an immediate need for a C-section. And in that culture, you can't uh, have you can't perform a C-section on a woman without two signatures, one from her husband and one from her father. And if father's not available, then husband and brother, and if you know, on, on and on. So you needed legally two two uh, signatures uh, and uh, to to have a surgery. And um, when when it came down to it, and, and it was an emergent situation, uh, the father said, uh, "Inshallah." If God wills, she will live. No, I'm not signing for this $50 surgery. I'm not going to do it. Um, and then I, I, I added to that, hypothetically, I said, okay, you are, you are uh, if you're a female physician here, you are the patient. You're the mother delivering in need of a C-section. And, uh, or, or this is your spouse, if you're a male physician. What, what, what should happen here? 
and it was awkward and, and people were grappling with it and saying, well, you know, we'll get, we'll, we'll get the, uh, we'll get the imam involved or we'll get the religious leader or we'll get, you know, we'll try to talk some, I said, okay, five minutes has passed and the baby is now dead. Now mom's life is in immediate danger. What happens now? And they grappled with that and they were, you know, saying this stuff and, and, uh, and a, a, a dean of the nursing school spoke up and boldly in a room and said, people, we rarely make decisions well in the midst of crisis. Why are we not developing a system that ensures we have signed family consent early during the gestational period? We know this is coming for nine months. And, and it was an aha moment in the room that really, if we had developed a system where every woman that comes in, we introduce this idea before folks are in crisis, then then we won't have to deal with that in the moment. We'll have what we need. Again, systems are so important to uh, improve, uh, or to prevent harm and improve health outcomes. So I would ask you, as we think about these systems, who's responsible for developing that one? Is it the doctor? Is it the nurse? Is the family member or patient responsible for developing their own system? Who's responsible for developing that system? Systems heal people. Systems harm or kill people. That is the reality. So the question is, and I've heard it year after year, I've heard clinicians grapple with this at GMHC, should physicians carry the primary burden of developing systems? Maybe not. So as we think about that, let's consider Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality. We are accountable for the work we're doing, that we must do it heartily as, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that really this is about a reflection of Jesus. So how much, let's think about how much do we do we invest in sending a physician worker overseas? I've heard figures somewhere between $250,000 and $500,000 in an investment to get a physician overseas. When we think about medicine paying off loans, when we think about uh, uh, cultural uh, training, we think about um, the investment that goes into to support raising and then that support raising being present while that physician is preparing in language school and those types of things. It's an enormous investment. What I propose is that we, we think through why they come home prematurely. How frequently does one of those physicians we've invested in come home after three, four, or five years? And what is the reason what is the reason that that happens? And it's often team dynamics. It's often systems that are in place or not in place that determine the burnout or determine the harm of that well-intended, godly, Christ-centered, um, hopeful, energetic um, missionary clinician that heads overseas. And the current situation to me indicates that we undervalue the impact of competent administrative leadership as part of, um, not central to, but part of a competent or functional mission team. So here are three key benefits going into the last section of our presentation. Here are three key benefits 
of involving competent mission-driven administrative leadership in the medical mission teams, and they are stewardship, excellence, and team satisfaction and retention. And there's a sustainability factor in here as well. First, stewardship. Waste can lead to unnecessary harm and loss of life and can damage our witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Access to resources are tied to evidence of stewardship. You will get resources. People will want to invest resources in a place that is a good steward of the resources they have. Investment in administrative leadership is a proven act of stewardship. And finally, to maximize stewardship, each member, each team member should work or practice at the highest level of their training. We should be empowering people to practice at the highest level of their training. If there are things that an administrator does not have to do because someone else can do them, they should be delegated. It is good stewardship to do that. And we should keep people, uh, clinicians included especially, keep them practicing at the highest level of their training whenever possible. And then excellence, um, the prevention of harm. If harm is avoidable, we must prevent it through the development of systems. Um, two, scaling quality, tracking outcomes that matter to patients. We must track the outcomes that matter to patients and not assume that we know them. Maybe they don't want that surgery when they have the bowel blockage. Maybe they're not after 60 more very sick days on earth. Maybe they want to pass naturally and be with the Lord. Maybe we're not asking patients what outcomes matter to them. And it's extremely important that we're doing that and, and, uh, and that we are, we are then tracking those outcomes and, and improving them. Uh, team member satisfaction retention is the third one. Um, burnout is a real thing. And I would say, I don't have a specific slide in here for it, but exhaustion is a silent thief of empathy. And often when we see and, and see our team members are ourselves on the mission field, and we are, we are um, grumpy with our teammates, we are short with the nurses, or we're short with our other teammates, or we're, we're failing to document uh, in a timely way, or our quality is falling off, often it is not that, that you know, we're having some sort of moral failure or that we no longer care about um, life, life or, or the well-being of the people that we're with, but, but we're often in an advanced stage of burnout. And as a person who's experienced that personally, um, it's a very real thing. And um, good leadership can develop and prevent the burnout of others um, as long as they, they remain healthy and, and stable. Um, one capable mission-driven administrative leader can prevent the burnout of several physicians. Again, not alone, working in tandem with a team, uh, but consider that investment if that investment is not currently a reality on your team. So how would an agency ensure a physician is professionally and clinically prepared to advance the kingdom of God through medicine? Think about what we do to prepare a doctor all the way from high school and undergrad and medical school and residency and fellowships and and cultural training and all of those things, what would we do to make sure that they're, they've got everything they need? And I, and I think often of the, the full scope family medicine programs that, that frequent, frequent GMHC, Waco and Muncie and uh, Via Christi in Wichita and Ventura and um, John Peter Smith in Fort Worth, these, these residencies that train full scope family medicine, Greeley in Colorado, training full scope family medicine, 
they, we, we send these physicians through uh, in, um, very intentional training to get them the skills they need overseas. What I would propose is that we, we think similarly about how we would, we would engage or train administrative leadership. I'm thinking about a, a uh, conversation I had in the, the exhibitors hall after a talk I gave at GMHC a couple of years ago when a long-term missionary physician put his arm around me after one of these talks and said, you know, I think you're onto something. We ought to have some administration focus. He said, let's take a bunch of these kids that can't get into medical school and uh, let's put them through some business classes and they can help out too. And my answer to him was, you know, is that really who we want managing the systems that determine if our, if our valuable clinicians burn out in a matter of a few years? Wouldn't we want the student body president who is sold out for Jesus? Wouldn't we want the natural leader, the gifted leader, uh, who can, can corral people around a vision? And, and, and get, get systems organized to ensure the elimination of waste and, and improve stewardship and manage finances and, and manage staff and team dynamics and all that. Wouldn't we want the best and brightest in that role working alongside the best and brightest clinicians? Certainly we would want both. And so these are some, some of the qualities that we could be looking for in, uh, in administrative leaders, compassion, uh, collaboration, servant leadership, work ethic, team building, finance, we get good financial background, you would want humility, we'd want a public speaker, an innovator, we'd want people that could really engage other folks, build trust, extensive training and quality, uh, quality and process improvement, very important, immersive cultural language training. Um, if this talent exists locally, multiply it through training and discipleship. If not, import it and then develop it locally. I've often been asked, um, you know, isn't it important that we find a local, a, a national, a person who's there? Well, absolutely. Just as important it is that we that we train clinicians that way. Um, if you can find people that are local, that, that are bright and capable, absolutely. They are there. We should engage with them. But if they're not there, let's import somebody until we can build local capacities. Um, not taking the risk of it being done poorly and then for us to develop um, ineffective and harmful systems. So these are some relative, re relevant resources for, for leadership development. Um, hardwiring excellence is a classic uh, in U.S. healthcare, but it's certainly the principles apply overseas. Sent it over to a few uh, missionary surgeons and missionary physicians, and they found it very helpful um, and very applicable. Five dysfunctions of a team is a leadership parable. Uh, it's not specifically about healthcare, but it's certainly about team dynamics, and it's a parable that you read through the book and you can see yourself in the characters in the story. And then Crucial Conversations, absolutely important book, especially in a, uh, in a remote and, uh, and, and uh, hard place, uh, because so often uh, team dynamics explode when folks don't really know how to communicate with each other and they're far away from, from the counseling they need and the, and the support they need. And, and, um, and so it's really, really important that they get that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, the skills that they need to be able to, to resolve things in the mission field when they're when they're alone. Also, I would say that none of these resources really replace good coaching and, and with the internet, what it is now, uh, it, it is possible to, to connect with really good uh, clinical psychologists or, or uh, therapists, marriage and family therapists over here here in the U.S. Especially if you're 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 an American um, uh, and, and you're needing somebody with your with your cultural context. 
that understands your cultural context and help you work through marriage issues or or if you're single working through your own um, team dynamic or issues or burnout or emotional emotional uh, issues uh, certainly you would want to supplement but these are just three books that can be helpful um, also would recommend if you're if you're looking at developing administration sending people get through good MBA programs or, or public health programs over over uh, here in the US and then sending them into an organization that has an active Malcolm Baldrige program uh, it, the, in, in, in getting them trained up to become an examiner. There's, I can't think of better training uh, to run a, a rural or missionary hospital overseas than to be a National Baldrige uh, Quality Award examiner because they're constantly examining processes within a hospital and it would be so, so necessary to, to modify the, the, the training they would receive in a, in a local so here is a tool that you can consider uh, to, to help develop strategies, solve problems overseas. And it's essentially a six-question tool. I've used it hundreds of times in my own context as a hospital CEO. And, and the six questions that you can take with you are, number one, what outcome needs improvement? Uh, the second is, who are the stakeholders involved? Three is, where are there opportunities to share? Four, why isn't it already happening? Five. How, how do we measure its success? And the sixth question is, when do we expect to see progress? Answer those questions. You've got the beginnings of a strategy. You can build that out, solve that problem, and then ask what outcome needs improvement now. Uh, so this is a, a practical tool you can use on the field. Um, and and uh, I would encourage you to have a whiteboard or, or something where you can just really draw it up. And um, we've even used, if you, can, if you can get it, whiteboard paint, where you can just paint the whiteboard paint on the wall and, and then draw these questions up on the wall and answer them um, and put them into a process map uh, that you can use to solve problems. Uh, one example of a place that does this really well, uh, does quality, does develop systems really well, is Butaro District Hospital, which is developed in southern Rwanda. Uh, and it was inspired by a guy named Paul Farmer. And, and I've come to know the architects, Mass Design Group, that designed this hospital. But, but following it, um, the folks at Mass Design Group say that, that the, that the building of this hospital led to the largest reduction in maternal mortality, documented reduction in maternal mortality in the history of the world. That was according to Mass Design Group. And um, they have the favor of the Minister of Health, of the President of Rwanda. This hospital is a darling in that country. Everyone at, at the government level, at the parliament level, knows and loves this place, and it is a shining star. Uh, of a hospital, it is also very secular, and um, maybe even maybe even critical or antagonistic toward things of faith. Um, at least some of the folks who who work there. Um, it, it's certainly not uh, a mission-driven, Christ-centered hospital. Um, but what I want us to challenge ourselves with is where are some examples in the world of Christ-centered mission teams who have measurably improved health outcomes among a population. Where are places where Christ followers are leading efforts to improve health outcomes for the glory of God? Not simply provide care, but to, but to ask further, when we think about access to care, access to what? Access to what are we providing? Are we, are we good at what we're doing? And where are the places that are really known for being excellent with clinical care. And they are out there for sure. 
So think through that, and then and then as you assess your team health, think through these things. Um, back to leadership. Think, are you a part of a group that is a stable team with high retention of leadership that's forward-thinking, motivated by mission, vision, and values, strong employee engagement, team-based recruitment, responsive and timely to the needs of others, succession and retention plans are in place, and a positive culture that's encouraging good communication, connected staff, work-life balance, generational value is there, and uh, and there are relationships within team members. Or is your team one with high turnover of team members with low retention of leadership, a stuck thinking? Mission and values are stated in some lost documents somewhere. Um, weak team member engagement, one person is tasked with the recruitment of folks, or one person is tasked with these types of, of, uh, of initiatives. So uh, are we so overwhelmed it's difficult to be responsive or no succession or retention planning or struggling with organizational culture, broken communication, disconnect between leadership and staff, difficult to provide work-life balance, division and conflict among the teams. Which team, which, which of these profiles best represents the team you are on? And if you're not on a team yet, if you're not yet on a team, which team do you want to be on? Think what questions should you be asking to ensure that you're on the team you want to be on? So here's some key takeaways as we wrap up. Prioritizing measurable quality, safety, and stewardship initiatives through investment in competent administrative leadership is a wise, sustainable use of kingdom resources. If you're currently on a team that is lacking effective leadership, consider making this your team's top priority. It isn't really optional if you're going to be sustainable. Third, if you are an ineffective leader, seek resources and accountability. Own it. Get help or change roles. Get healthy for the glory of God. If you're considering joining a medical mission team, evaluate its administrative capacity. If it is, if it is missing or dysfunctional, uh, as uh, or you as a clinician will have to take time out of practicing medicine to complete those necessary administrative tasks. I, I had a I had a, uh, a surgeon friend tell me I got into surgery to help people for the glory of God in unreached places, not to order scalpels online and, and navigate customs in a developing country. Another one said, uh, when I was training in the U.S., I didn't even know this stuff went on behind the scenes. Somehow the sterile gloves were always where I needed them prior to starting a procedure. Scrub nurses and techs handed me instruments. I, I only saw instruments when they didn't work, which was rare. Now I'm in a hospital in a developing world, and today I spent 10 minutes trying to find gloves. That's just gloves. That doesn't even account for the hundreds of other things that are needed to practice good medicine. This is a reality when administrative capacity is missing. I can't tell you how many hours and people spend here each week taking small handfuls of gloves uh, and placing them in piles around the hospital for people to use. If someone would spend an hour a week stocking supplies in standard places, we could double the productivity of our staff. In U.S., people waste time uh, with electronic documentation. Here, it's supplies. Someone needs to process map our entire hospital and dele delegate those responsibilities to team members in the most standardized, efficient ways, decreasing variability and ensuring quality. Finally, someone should be monitoring the care and well-being of the administrative leader and the family. Because as soon as you get that person in, the tendency is, gosh, we feel this relief. It's great. But no one's really paying attention to the missionary administrative leader and his or her family 
And that can be the equivalent of like a solo doctor in a remote place where you're 24-7 on, which is almost unthinkable these days. And that's the role of the rural administrator because there really is no one else that does what they do. So it's very important that the team is checking on them as well. Um, so leadership capacity building requires a thoughtful, intentional, and prayerful strategy. Think about what your strategy is for administrative capacity building, leadership capacity building. Um, so in closing, my prayer is that we would, as followers of Jesus, invest in administrative leaders that work alongside clinicians to build systems that lead to the healing of masses of people. leading the healing of masses of people and by God's power and the systems for which he equips us to lead, that we could heal the sick and wounded in such a measurable, with such measurable excellence that it would win the favor of kings, of heads of state, of ministers of health, of deans of medical schools, all for the glory of God and by God's grace and for his glory. May our compassion and clinical excellence inspire those leaders to say, blessed be the God of that doctor, for she heals miraculously. Blessed be the God of this nurse, for he loves my people well. And blessed be the God of these workers, for the lame now walk and the blind now see and the sick and wounded are healed. And God alone can get the glory for his work. God's faithful. We're promised that in 1 Corinthians. We're promised that throughout the Bible. God is faithful. If you are tired, if you are burnt out, if you are lacking this type of leadership, or if you are excited to head over, just uh, remind, be reminded that the Lord is faithful in all of those settings. He is sovereign over all. And, and in, in whatever ways we are, are sick or wounded ourselves, the Lord can heal us just as he has empowered us to heal others. I want to thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to questions.